Friends, why don't you uh, open up to James chapter 1. James chapter 1. In the Pew Bibles, it is page 1011. James chapter 1. And we are going to be reading verses 1 through 8. Today we are starting a brand new series, one that I am super excited for. Uh, Alex and I have... Uh, walk through this book for what? How many weeks? How many months? At least three months. And so uh, you are going to be able to glean some of Alex's wisdom as well um, as we, we just dive into this very uh, practical book. As we come out of the book of Romans, which was this really big, heady, uh, where's this righteousness coming from? Oh, this righteousness comes from Christ. And now it forms us and changes us into a people. And the book of James is a very practical, earthy book of, so now how do we live? So would you stand for the reading of God's word? James chapter 1. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes in the dispersion, greetings. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to you without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like the wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man. Unstable in all his ways. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. So I've entitled this series, Paparazzi, A Living Faith in a Watching World. We live in a world that is constantly watching news. Hashtag fake news, whatever you want to call it. We're constantly watching the news. Fox, ABC, CNN, you name who it is, wherever you want to pull your news from. We are constantly watching the news. 24 hours a day, the media is bringing to light what is going on in our world. Constantly. There's times that I avoid reading the news. I avoid watching the news. One, the evening news is always depressing news, right? It's like, really? This? Now? Come on. We know that our world is messed up. We know that it's broken. Can't you show something about puppies? You know, something warm and fuzzy. But no, it's always about the brokenness of our world. And it's often been said, even in this media world that's constantly watching, that throughout time that a picture is worth a thousand words, right? 
any per- picture may be worth a thousand words, but there are very few photos that even bring more than a thousand words. They tell, these pictures sometimes tell powerful stories, a poignant story enough to change the world, to maybe even galvanize our soul, to motivate us, to move us out of our places of comfort into the unknown. Over and over again, sometimes these pictures move us even to tears, to sorrow, to anger. But they move us. They tweak something in our soul. I'll give you some examples. Carol Gutsy, the first woman to receive a Pulitzer Prize for her spot news photography, received her most recent Pulitzer You got it? Received her Pulitzer Prize in 2000 for some touching photos in Kosovo. And it's often in, in this time in, when there's war where these photographers catch these glimpses, these moments of, oh my word, you're going to have to, we're going to get catch up on this one. We'll, we'll fly through them at the end, I'm assuming. Yeah, uh, the first one. <laughs> the first one. Are we not there yet? It's, oh, you got to be kidding me! There you go. There, there, there. One. This one. There one. So this, this is a picture of Agram Shala. He is a two-year-old boy who has passed through a fence with a barbed wire separating him and his family. Thousands, thousands of Kosovo refugees were united and camped in Albania, waiting for their family. And she caught this very moment of a baby being passed, and the world goes, what is wrong? What is going on in Kosovo? Or how about this one? The Miami, Miami Herald photographer Patrick Harrell captured these harrowing images in Haiti in 2008. He documented the tragedy with impressive black and white stills. And the subject of this is after the storm. And it's a boy who is just trying to save a stroller after this tropical storm, Hannah, struck and devastated Haiti. Or what about this? I remember this one. You can go to the next one. Pulitzer Prize winning journalist Deanna Fitzmaurice won a highly respected essay in 2005 for her photogenic, uh, photo, photographic essay, Operation Lionheart. Operation Lionheart is the story of a nine-year-old Iraqi boy who was caught in one of the most dangerous war-torn moments in history. The boy was brought to a hospital in Oakland, California and gone through multiple surgeries, dozens of life and death surgeries. The world was watching in that moment, wondering, is this boy going to be able to make it? And his courage and unwillingness to die gave him the nickname Salah Kali, Lionheart. 
photographers are there to help us connect, to understand, to move our hard, stale hearts to compassion, to action. And yet there are even other news services that are far less reputable than these. Where the tabloids have paparazzi on every corner waiting for any breaking news. They're looking for celebrities and politicians to be caught in, in awkward moments just to make some coin. Go back one, Alex. This is from Olivia Mum. Is there one more in there? There should be. If not, don't worry about it. Uh, but let's go back, go to the one that you just had up. We remember this one, right? The, the paparazzi had, had a way of wanting, there was kind of this, this bloodthirst to catch a moment. And if you remember, all the way back in 1997, the speeding car carrying away Princess Diana, the paparazzi were instrumental in catching photos and causing the family, or Diana and her then fiancé, Dodi Al-Fayed, to crash into a pole and the loss of Princess Diana. There's running and there's hiding and there's shame. There's one thing to be catching that, that precious moment that moves us to compassion. But then there's the world that seems to be watching, wanting to catch your trip-ups, your failures. And some of you know those feelings, those moments, and you're just going, man, all I want to do is run and hide and shame and be ashamed of these watching eyes and catching me in these moments. And sure, in this room, there are not people who the paparazzi are constantly catching after you, wanting to catch it in a moment. You don't have any 24-hour news service trying to watch your life and see what's going on. But we are living lives before and ever watching world and often the fear of exposure and i know this personally fear of exposure causes me causes you to want to hide and just let me live a very private life get out of my world let me be and we can easily identify with the early christians who faced this increasing pressure to let their faith live only in their heads instead of being evidenced in their lives. And James, the author of this book, encourages the very first believers to let pressure move them deeper into their journey with Jesus and to let their faith be lived out boldly, out in the open. Today the call is exactly the same for us. James invites us you and me, to live faithfully according to God's word in front of a very watching world. How we live in light of the gospel is important, right? It matters how we live. It's not just this head knowledge, you know, being able to memorize scripture and to know the standards, to be able to know what I believe and what that means, you know, for how we organize the church is more than that, right? The world is skeptical of Christianity. Extremely skeptical. And if you don't believe it, 
Watch the news. Watch your, even your favorite sitcom and listen carefully of how skeptical the media and the world is about Christianity. Read the newspapers. Talk to your friends. Talk to your family members. Talk to your neighbors. Or do a Google search. Here's, do you have this? Excellent. Why, these are the top three questions. Number one, why are Christians so hypocritical? The first question. The second one, why are Christians so negative and so judgmental? And then, thankfully, corechristianity.com says, wants to ask and answer the question, why are Christians so intolerant? Friends, it matters how we live in front of a watching world. The Bible is replete with verses that link Christian conduct with how even the world sees Christ himself. Listen to Matthew 5. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to the Father who is in heaven. Let your light shine. Let it shine before men. Let it shine before the world. Or what about 2 Corinthians 9, 13? By their approval of this service, they will glorify God because of your submission that comes from your confession of the gospel of Christ and the generosity of your contribution for them and for all others. In other words, man, these people, by what you are doing, how you are serving, are going to glorify God because they find you in submission to the gospel. They are watching how you are giving. And they are in awe. They are shocked. Or what about 1 Peter 2? Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. So that they will speak, so when they speak of you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of his visitation. In other words, God comes back. They are going to glorify God because of what they have seen in you. Let your conduct be honorable in this watching world. So honestly, the title, if you look in your bulletin, the the title of today's sermon is not fun. It's called How to Suffer. It's like a 101 kind of course for you, you know, and if you were browsing, kind of browsing through Amazon and came across a book with this title, I'm pretty sure that you would move on to the whole next section. Man, find me something a little bit more happy. Because how to suffer does not sound like something I want to sign up for. Who wants to suffer? And what topic could be less enjoyable than to think about suffering? The reality is I can't make any predictions about 2018. But I, and I, I can make some predictions, but th- there's very little that I can be really super confident about. But I can make one. In 2018, you will suffer in some way. You will really struggle in some point in your life. How do I know this? Because even in 2017 and 2016 and 2015 and 14 and 13 and keep on going, in all those years, they all involved suffering. Suffering is part of yours and my everyday reality. It's part of our very fabric of life. 
although nobody wants to talk about suffering, we just want to even look at your Christmas cards. We've got them on our, our banister, going up our stairs in our home, and everybody is really smiling. Nobody is showing me one picture of suffering. Some of you got puppies that you're cuddling. Some of you got your children and their hair looks really nice and neat. Everybody is in a really good mood, it looks like, in that moment. But the reality is that all of us are going to suffer. None of us want to talk about it, though. We all need to learn. Every one of you needs to learn how to suffer well. Because suffering is going to be coming our way, whether we like it or not. Troubles are inevitable. So today I want us to look at how to suffer. And as we look at the book of James, we are going to discover that we are told to do something that we would never think of doing in a million years. Look at verse 2. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet Trials of various kinds. Say those first four words with me. Count it all joy. Hmm. Count it all joy, my brothers. Here's what James, the half-brother of Jesus, it tells us to do when we suffer. Count it all joy. That is, as someone else has written, it, it is an irrational call. To count it all joy. One translation says, count yourself supremely happy. You're laid off work. Be happy. Your landlord says, you got two days to get out. Awesome. Or R. Kent Hughes says this in his commentary, how nice. A letter of encouragement from Pastor Wacko. Don't worry, be happy. And then and now, James' command is to consider it pure joy. Whatever you fa- whatever, whenever you face trials of many kinds, it just sounds irrational. Put this verse on a sign next to the expressway and it would appear to be the work of a crazed fanatic. Indeed, any culture, including ours, he says, determined to insulate ourselves from trials, even discomforts, this sounds crazy. So let's look at what he means. Because it is counter-cultural. James doesn't mean that we live in absolute denial and that we're in this continual state of fake happiness. Those are the Christians that I really want to avoid where they're always, oh, praise praise the Lord. And I'm going, really? you got to be hurting somewhere. Be real. So what is he saying? The Bible never encourages faking it or denying your emotions. In fact, the Psalms give us Explicit permission to be honest about what you are feeling. To tell God about it. Faking is never an option. So what James is, says is something more complex and it is sophisticated. He says, count it. 
consider it. And this means that we, we deliberate, we consider decisions. We, it, when we go through suffering, we, we look deeply into what is going on here. It means that we honestly, we honestly feel our emotions. And then we begin to consider in our minds about what is going on. Man, this might be the, uh, one of the more important sermons for you to actually consider and to think deeply about why am I hurting? And to be honest for once about your pain and your emotion and what is going on in here. He says, consider it. Think deeply about it. Let me give you an example. Several years ago, a pastor... Lloyd John Ogilvy underwent the worst year of his life. His wife had gone through five major surgeries in one year, as well as radiation and chemotherapy. Several of his staff members had departed, left the church. Big, large problems were, were looming, and he just felt discouraged. And still he wrote this. The greatest discovery that I have made in the midst of all the discoveries is that I can have joy when I can't feel like it. Artesian joy. It bubbles up. When I have every reason to feel beaten, I felt joy. In spite of everything, God gave me the conviction of being loved and the certainty that nothing can separate me from Him. It was not through happiness, gush, or jolliness, but a constant flow of the Spirit through me. At no time did he give me the easy confidence that everything would work out as I wanted on my timetable, but that he was in charge, and he would give me and my family enough courage for each day. Grace. Joy is always the result of that. And that is what James is talking about. He's not talking about denying. He's not talking about pretending. He's talking, he's telling us to think about our trials in a very specific kind of way. He's not saying that we should enjoy these trials. Oh, I love suffering. It is a joy to be punished it's a joy to lose my job it's a joy to lose my family it's a joy to go through this relational disconnect he's not saying that he is saying that we should begin to think about what the troubles bring us in fact that small word it consider it all joy contains the whole of life it sums up in its tiny compass every one of life's trials which, which the present may contain, which the future may bring, or the past may keep stored up in our memory. Consider it with all joy. And if we are honest with ourselves, life is filled with hidden rocks, sudden violent winds of circumstances just lying in wait for you, believer. 
Every single one of them is to be embraced in James' word, it. There is no trial, there is no calamity, there is nothing great or small, no overwhelming sorrow or a small rub of life that is outside of God's plan, whereby those are all stepping stones to glory. We should consider the purpose. What is the purpose of suffering? What is going on in and through and behind and underneath all this suffering that you might be currently or will be suffering? When you suffer, friends, don't deny the suffering, but consider what else is going on. And in particular, James tells us to consider three th- two things, and I'm going to add my third pastoral one. One, the first is remember the benefits. Look at what James says in verses 3 and 4. For you know that the testing of your faith produces what? steadfastness and let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete lacking in nothing that sounds absolutely wonderful doesn't it at least the end (laughs) i'm going to be perfect and complete and i'm going to be lacking nothing but there's that first section according to james suffering is never purposeless in the christian life Suffering produces steadfastness. Steadfastness is a power to withstand hardship and stress. It's the ability to endure trials and to stand under those trials with inward fortitude and strength. To stand up underneath what is coming your way. You could say it is staying power, heroic endurance, or just plain old toughness. It's a skill that is absolutely necessary in this life that can be so brutal. Vince Lombardi, the famous football coach, said, it's not whether or not you get knocked down, it's whether you get back up. And that's what James is talking about with steadfastness. So how do you get this quality? Because honestly, when suffering comes my way, we often have a couple different mechanisms going on, right? It's either fight or flight. Get me out of dodge. Mine, when there is suffering coming my way, the first thing that I do is I start building walls. Safety, protection, relational walls that are high, keep you out and safe so that I can manage my world. Anybody else do that? Man, this is hard. I don't want to deal with this. This is ugly, and this is pushing me and poking me and prodding me. And all. I'm going to build some walls. It's a lot, lot safer to manage this. And he says, no, 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 no. This, let me tell you, Paul, let me tell you, Miss O'Day, how to do it. And it's simple. You get it by practice. The way to become steadfast is by prevailing in each and every moment. The more trials we pass, the tougher we become. It's like watching those movies where there's a boxer who is just getting pummeled with punch after punch after punch, and you're going, he's going down, he's going down. And sure enough, you see it in slow motion in these movies. One punch across the jaw, and you just see the the face kind of... And what does he do? You see his eyes roll back, and he does a... And then you see the... One... Two, 
and the slow countdown, and it's going to have this echo in the, in, the, in the soundtrack. And all of a sudden you see it in his eyes. There's a flutter, and there's movement. And against all odds, what happens? The boxer rises from the floor, and he goes at his opponent, and what often happens, in movies at least, he... Adrian, kind of thing. You know, it's that moment of triumph, and that is what James is talking about. And here's the thing. Steadfastness is that muscle that strengthens us when it is actually used. We would all, myself included, would love a carefree life with no problems. Any amens there? Man, I would just love a carefree life. My kids are perfect. My marriage is perfect. My church is perfect. The giving is on the rise. You know, there's no problems. There's no church discipline. There's everything is perfect in this world. I would love that. But that's not going to happen. So what we need is what James describes here, the ability to stand up when suffering is coming, not to bend or not to, not to break. The only way to do this is through experience after experience. And that's not all. Did you see it? And let steadfastness have its full effect, James says, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. The goal is is not just to persevere or to push through. Because I think that's a lot what we all think we have to do. If I could just be a snowplow and push through this and get on with life, ah, life is going to be better, right? I, I just want to push through and get done with this. It goes far beyond that. The goal is not get past it. The goal is that we become whole and complete when we learn to stand up underneath a trial or suffering, something happens to us. Our character changes. God goes to work in us, and we become completely different people than we were before. God is more committed to your character, the saying goes, than He is to your comfort. Write that down. God is more committed to your character than he is to your comfort. I think about my own story as an eight-year-old boy who went through childhood sexual abuse. Man, that is a season of life that I would never choose for myself or for anybody else. Never. Not even on my worst enemy. I would never want want them to be repeated, but it was through that suffering and the beginning of going through counseling and being able to stand up underneath those trials that I was taught so many lessons that I would never learn any other way. Never. It makes me who I am today. It produced that, that, that steadfastness produced something in me. In me. It, it shaped my character, my identity. God was doing a good work in me, even through that suffering. So when you go through a period of suffering, don't deny the emotions or the pain. But at the same time, consider what 
might God be doing here? God is not wasting your suffering. He is using your suffering. And that suffering is producing some kind of heroic endurance and toughness in your life. And God will take that toughness and he will shape your very character and make you look more and more like his son, Jesus Christ. So, friends, count it all joy. Rejoice in your sufferings even when they're tough, because God is using them. Jerry Bridges, in his book, wrote uh, his book called Is God Really in Control? And this is a really good book. For those of you asking the questions, where is God in all of this? Is God really in control? He reminds us of this. God never wastes pain. He always uses it to accomplish his purpose. And his purpose is for his glory and our good. Therefore, we can trust him when our hearts are aching or our bodies are racked with pain. He goes on to say, trusting God in the midst of our pain and heartache means that we can accept it from him. There's a vast difference between acceptance and either resignation or submission. We can resign ourselves to a difficult situation, and I can see myself doing that. Okay, well, I'll take this one for the team. That's resignation or submission, simply because we don't see any other alternative. Many people do that all the time, or we could submit to the sovereignty of God in our circumstances with a certain amount of reluctance, but to truly accept our pain and heartache has a connotation of willingness. An aptitude of acceptance says that we trust God. That he loves us and knows what is best for us. As is so often the case, I'm glad that the passage doesn't end here. Everything that I've said so far is absolutely true. But it's not enough. We need more than than knowing that uh, Man, there's benefits to this. We need help. So when we're suffering, we need to remember there are benefits to this, but we also need to remember, the second point is, we need to remember our help. The reality is that when you're suffering, we need help. Quite often the suffering feels more like I can't handle this. I am getting crushed. This is devastating me. I am utterly depressed. It's it's uncomfortable. It's excruciating. We hate it. And we don't know if we can bear up underneath this load. I cannot handle this. There's a cliche that goes around saying, God will never give you more than you can handle. You've heard it, right? That sounds good, but it's just not true. God will give you more than you can handle. He will. That is, if if we try to handle it without his help, he'll give you more. Hey, Paul, you think you can handle it? Oh, yeah, I got it. Superhuman strength. Look at me. Super Christian. God goes, hold on a second. 
Let me add a little bit more. You see, there are going to be times that we go through far more than we can ever handle if we try to handle things on our own. The good news, though, is that we never have to suffer alone. James says, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. Let him ask in faith, with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like the wave of the sea that is tossed to and fro by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all of his ways. So when we go through trials, we tend to ask questions, right? We could ask, why me? We could ask, get me out of this. Can't you get me out of this? It's okay, by the way, to ask these questions. You're human. God can handle your honesty. He can handle your crying out. It was this time last year, we went through the book of Lamentations. God can handle your crying out. But there's another question we can ask God, and it's one that James encourages us to ask in the middle of suffering. He says, Lord, give me wisdom. Ask God to help you understand the world and and what you're going through in light of His Word and His purposes. Sometimes people misinterpret these verses, and I have done it for years, but they take them out of context, and they think it's about just a prayer for wisdom in general. But let's look at the context, right? The context is, James isn't just talking generally about wisdom here. He's talking about wisdom in the middle of suffering sure god will give you wisdom if you ask but here specifically please remember this is talking about suffering the reality is when we we do lack wisdom we don't see the whole picture especially especially when we're suffering when we're suffering i know that i lose perspective i lose perspective I get angry, I get disillusioned, I can't see my own situation clearly anymore, I get knocked off kilter, and I don't think that there's any way that I can ever recover. You ever feel that way? You're like the boxer who's been hit, and everything's in slow motion, and you can't see clearly anymore. That's what's going on often in the midst of pain and suffering. So James says, hey, ask for God's help. Ask God to give you the big picture. The good news? The good news is that God is more than willing to give you an answer to your prayer. He gives generously to all without reproach. And this is a comforting verse. God isn't up there rolling his eyes and saying, you got to be kidding me. No. He doesn't expect us to handle things on our own. He doesn't reproach us for reaching out. He doesn't slap your hand and say, come on, kids, grow up a little bit. No, instead he's eager and he's generous with his help. He stands at the ready and willing position to give us all the wisdom we need to get through all these difficulties. He is ready to help you. We just need to ask. The only condition, the only condition is that we are not divided 
in our loyalties. James says to ask in faith. To not doubt. To not be double-minded. So what, what is James saying here? You have to look at what he says as a whole. He's not saying that we can never struggle, that we can never question God, that there can never be a flicker of doubt anywhere in our questioning. He's not saying that we need to be 100% pure belief or never wrestle with the Bible's teaching. He's not saying that. Everyone, everyone, me too, will experience this. He's talking about something quite different. Have you ever gone to the lake? None of you own a lake house, but somebody else's lake in their lake house where they have a dock and a boat. You ever have that? And uh, you got one foot on the, on the dock, one foot on the boat. And what happens? The, the boat starts to push off. You have a choice to make, right? You can either have both feet firmly in the boat or both feet firmly on the dock, right? Or, or you can have put both feet in the water right you can end up in the water and that's what james is saying when you face a trial you face a choice a decision to make you can rely on god's help you can rely on god's character you can rely on god's promises which are sure they are yes and they are amen or you can reject his help and put your trust in money, in a relationship, in a marriage, your dreams, your schooling, or whatever you think can get you through. But if you try to do both, you are going to end up in the drink. End up in the water. And do you want to know what the truth is about us? We are probably all double-minded. We want God's help, right? But we also want our own security and identity from circumstances. What we really need is to cast ourselves on God completely and say, God, I need your wisdom. And I don't stand a chance. I do not stand a chance unless I get it. God, please help me. I am stepping off the dock and I am stepping into your boat. I am trusting you in this moment. I'm not trying to live in both words, I, worlds. I, I am working on being less double-minded, and I'm trying to be singular in my focus on you, trusting you. And so James is talking about somebody who's partially committed to God. Sometimes we, they pray to God for help, but sometimes they, they just don't care less, or they care only when it's hitting the fan. In those moments. They're part-time Christians. And Jesus is allowing into, is allowed partially into their lives, but they don't want him interfering with anything else. And if that's you, James says, don't expect much from God. Don't expect much from him. God is not stingy with his help. But he's not going to waste it on someone who does not really want him i like how sam alberry puts it we need to be as sincere about receiving god's wisdom as he is about giving it to us
I want it. And he goes, I want to give it to you. And here's the third point. It's not really found in the text, but it's my pastoral one. It is this. Not only remember the benefits and remember where your help has come from, I want you to remember your community. Often we find ourselves, when we find ourselves in the midst of suffering, we do what many celebrities do. We put it in high gear and tail. Get tail out of this place. We, we hide or we run. We go into, we find shelter in the midst of suffering, right? Or some of us move into, like I explained, I, I move into management mode where we, I just need to manage the pain. I need to manage the situation. I need to do, I need to do, you need to do, I need to do, I need to do. And maybe in the midst, you, you just find yourself even working harder and harder and harder and harder at trying to fix it, right? Some of you do that. You hit, you hit a wall, it's like, okay, I just need to work harder. You know who you are. You work harder. All too often we just hunker down or often we just disappear, but we need to remember that James wrote this letter to a community of churches, of people in a church. I want you everywhere that this letter from the half-brother of Jesus is read, it was read within a community of believers. And I don't know where I put it. As Alex and I read through the book of James, it's the orange one in the back, every time we read through the book of James, we, we read through it and highlighted and uh, put things, I put things in certain colors and codes, and I'm kind of freaky that way. But we constantly came on this phrase where James was addressing his people. And he says, brothers, but there are other times that he said, what, Alex? My brothers. My brothers. There was just this, this tenderness of saying, you're my brothers, you're my sisters, you're my, you're my family, this community. God has done something. And, and there was a real tenderness as he was speaking to this community of people. We can read over those phrases like brothers or, or any of you. And, and we can... We need to be reminded that this community was deeply interconnected to each other. This thing called life is not meant to be left, lived in isolation. When suffering comes, and it will, we are designed to live vulnerably, openly, in our community of faith. Sure, it might be dangerous out there where people seem to try to get a snapshot of your life and cast judgment, but here... With God's people, His body, your brothers and your sisters, your, your fathers and mothers in the faith, the children that God has brought together, we are to live openly, vulnerably, here. So if you are the married folk here, you are not meant to live your married life in marital bliss and isolation. We, we often talk and think that, man, the end goal is just to be married. No, but you know what? Your marriage is incorporated into a bigger family sure you might go off to your street and your address and live in in this happy blissful moment but which is a lie right um, but reality is that you are part of this family 
You are to live out your married life with a community of faith broader than your marriage. For those of you who are not married, you are never, ever alone. And hear this for me. The, the end goal for a Christian is not marriage. The end goal for a Christian is union with Christ. And you are never, ever alone. You are to live out your life in this world with brothers and sisters. You probably have more brothers and sisters here than you do in your own personal family. You've got fathers and who are more mature in the faith. You've got mothers who are more mature in the faith. You've got little brothers and little sisters and people your same age. You are called to live this together in a community. So when suffering comes to you, you are not alone. Hear that. For those of you who are young in your faith, you don't know it all. Okay? For those of you who are in fifth grade, third grade, second grade, preschool, wherever you are, first grade. Ellie, what grade are you in? Third grade. You know, you do not know it all. You don't. You need those who have lived longer than you. You need your moms and your dads. You need Al and Carol Casper. You need Grandma Pat. Yes, you do. You need those who are younger than you. And I want to encourage you guys who are younger. Look at me. I want you to chase after us older people. I want you to know us. I want you to watch us. I want you to, not, no, I'm watching you, Hunter, not chasing like this. I want you to get into friendships and relationships with us, not chase us. Uh, But I want you to look after us, ask us questions. I want you to be willing to be changed and formed by those who have been even shaped by suffering and pain. Your moms and dads and the people in this room have been, have gone through a lot. Some of us have lost friends to death and cancer. Some of us have lost jobs. Some of us have gone through relationship pains. Some of us don't learn so well. Some of us are very prideful. You need to learn from us. And for those of you who are seasoned in your faith, we need you. Your walk with Christ, your imperfect seasoned life, your experience and your failures, it was given to you not to be hoarded. It was meant to be shared. You are a steward of a trust that has been given to you it's not your life. So friends, you will suffer. Like it or not, you will. But when you suffer, I want you to consider to find joy in remembering his benefits, remembering God's help, and remembering that you are embedded in a beautiful family. 
James wrote this almost 2,000 years ago. And ever since this, God's people have been putting it to the test. There's a Japanese word, which I will mispronounce. But this word means golden repair. It is the art of restoring broken pottery with gold so that the, the fractures are literally illuminated. A kind of physical expression of its spirit. And as a philosophy, it celebrates, the, uh, celebrates imperfection as an integral part of the story. Not something to be disguised or hidden or to shake a finger at. The artists believe that when something has suffered damage and has a history, it becomes more beautiful. In this, the, the true life of an object or a person begins the moment it breaks and it reveals that it is actually vulnerable. I love that we are described in Scripture as clay pots not titanium vessels. The gap between once pristine, this pristine appearance and its visible imperfections deepen its appeal. And that's what, friends, that's what God does through suffering. He did it even with Jesus he used Jesus' moment of suffering and by Jesus becoming our greatest and only hope. And God uses our sufferings as Jesus used His sufferings. So whatever you go, are going through, friends, you can be honest, but you can also be hopeful. Because God is at work in your suffering and He has promised you with His help. It won't take away the pain of your suffering, but it will give you hope in the middle of it. And with God's help, you'll be able to not only stand, you'll be able to rejoice. You'll be able to rejoice in the suffering. So my prayer is that our lives in the midst of suffering will tell a powerful story to a watching world. The paparazzi and the media of our world as they are watching us, that our lives will tell a powerful story, a story that is poignant enough to change the world and even galvanize us together.